As we turn now to God's word, we're going to pause and pray, asking God to help us learn new truth from this familiar story that we've known every year that we've celebrated and shared Christmas together. Let's pray. Father, in these moments, we pray that by your spirit, you would make your word come alive to us. May we learn fresh things. May we make sound application. And may we love you more, looking more like you, living more for you. From this day forward, we pray to your glory. Amen. So if you can open your Bible at Luke chapter 1, verses 39 to 56, it would be very helpful to, to make your way through this with us. But what could be more ordinary and yet more wonderful than two expectant mothers getting together to talk about the birth of their soon-to-be-born sons. This conversation that we have the privilege to eavesdrop on is not just any ordinary two mothers chatting. It's far from ordinary in any way. The hostess, Elizabeth, is elderly. She was considered by everyone who knew her as barren. But now, as announced by the angelic messenger to her gobsmacked husband, she is soon to give birth to a special son who would be named John, who would have this particular responsibility to prepare the way for the coming of the Messiah. And her relation, Mary, the other expectant mother, well, her story is even more amazing. Yes, it was the same messenger angel, but this time there was to be no human earthly father, for she was a virgin. Rather, as in the days of creation, God the Holy Spirit would overshadow her, and thus the child to be born would be the Son of God. Elizabeth's son would represent uh, the end of the Old Covenant. John would be the last of the Old Testament prophets. While Mary's son represents the establishment of a new covenant with its wonderful promise of Emmanuel, God with us. And these two remarkable women are equipped, enabled to, to deal with this wonderful information that had been given to them because they were well-versed in the Scriptures. They knew God's Word. They had been expecting these events to take place, and now they were expecting they find themselves being written into the amazing story of redemption. So as we look on, listen in, this is not just two women having a chat together, not two relatives catching up after a long time apart. Rather, they are having sweet fellowship, celebrating the miraculous providence of God in their lives and in the world. So I want to consider four things with you this morning as we make our way through this text. And the first is this, the God who is moving, the God who is moving. Elizabeth's song is found in verses 42 to 45. It's a song focused on the coming of the Messiah. 
And that might strike you as strange because you would anticipate that Elizabeth would want to make a big fuss of the baby that she was soon to give birth to. She had waited so long. She had wanted so much. But we note that her thoughts are selfless and Christful. There's no pride. There's no jealousy. There's no competitiveness. Ancient prophecies are being fulfilled in the birth of her son, this angel-announced boy. And yet, impelled by the Holy Spirit, Elizabeth sings out in honor of Mary, saying, blessed are you among women. And in these moments, her supreme source of joy is the news that Messiah is coming into the world. She exclaims joyfully, she exclaims with a loud cry, and why? Because God is moving. Thirty years or so later, John would display that the family likeness when he would make it clear in John's Gospel, chapter 3, verses 28 to 30, when he said, You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. Elizabeth knew, John knew, both as baby and as adult, that the spotlight must rest upon Jesus. Why? Because God is on the move. It's a lovely little part of C.S. Lewis's well-known book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, that when you read it, it makes your spine tingle. It's designed to do that. It's Mr. Beaver speaking to the children. They say Aslan is on the move. Perhaps has already landed. And now a very curious thing happened. None of the children knew who Aslan was any more than you do. But... The moment the beaver had spoken these words, everyone felt quite different. At the name of Aslan, each one of the children felt something jump inside. Throughout Luke's gospel account, it's a recurring theme and it's an important one. The, the, the theme of being filled with the Holy Spirit. And we find it particularly in the opening chapters where again and again we encounter spirit-filled people who rejoice in the news of the coming Messiah because they understood that God was on the move and their desire is to join with him. Elizabeth knows it. The baby in her womb knows it. And this is their reason to celebrate. Next we see... Mary takes up the baton and she begins her famous song known to us as the Magnificat. And I'm sure you know that modern Christmas carol that asks Mary, did you know? And it answers, well, the answer is absolutely yes, she did. She sings praise to her God and in so doing, she, she highlights three things about him, about this God that she worships. 
And we will consider those in a moment. But before we do that, we need to pause for a moment and fully understand what she means when she says, my soul magnifies the Lord. See, there are two ways to think about magnification. Maybe some of you have taken a magnifying glass and you use it to look at something that's small. A bug or a flower or a postage stamp. And uh, you use this through the magnifying glass. You can see it's amazing beauty and detail. But that's not what Mary is doing when she's magnifying the Lord here. She's not making something that is small appear big. The imagery is not a magnifying glass, but a telescope through which we might look at the the, the moon or the stars. And just as you might be able to see the the detail in the rings of Saturn, if your telescope is a good one, Mary's making something that's very big but but seems far away, coming clear and near to us, bringing out the, the wonderful details of who God is that we might learn more of him. She wants to bring into focus three things, which are these. Firstly, the God who is merciful. The God who is merciful. Mary highlights his mercy when she sings in verse 50, but it's all throughout this passage. But there in verse 50, it says, His mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. And this is right at the very heart of the Christmas message. It really must center on this. That although through generations people have hardened their hearts against God, their creator, they have resisted his right to rule in their hearts, he still sees us. He still loves us. He still comes to us in mercy. And you have to remember what mercy is. Mercy is not getting what we deserve. That is to be cast away from God's presence forever. We do not get what we deserve. But Jesus gets what we deserve. He came into the world that he would take our place, that he would hang upon the cross, that he would bear our sins at Calvary. The angel announced to Joseph that special name that would be given to him. He was to be called Jesus, God's gift of salvation. Because at such a high personal cost, he would save his people from their sins. Mary, contrary to the teachings of the Roman Catholic Church, understood that she too needed to be saved. She too needed to be a recipient of the mercy of God. She sings of God as her Savior because she recognized her need to be saved from her sins. And our hearts ought to be stirred in this season of the year, perhaps more than any others, as we encounter the God who is merciful, one who delights both to see our need and to meet our need, to see the desperation that we have and to take it from us. And he understands that the greatest need of the world in this year and in every year is not a vaccine to inoculate against COVID and not a new PlayStation or some other trivia for Christmas, but forgiveness for our sins. 
And this, we know, is the reason why Jesus came. Those familiar words of John 3 and verse 17. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. The God who is merciful. And he can do this because the second thing we discover about him, as in Reginald Heber's hymn, he puts it like this, he is both merciful and mighty. God and three persons, blessed Trinity. He's both merciful and mighty. The God who is mighty. Nothing is beyond his power. No one can resist his rule. This is pantomime season. And it takes me back to my boyhood and young adult years when I used to every year take part in pantomime. There is photographic evidence that is very embarrassing, but you'll not get to see that. But this year there will be no pantomimes performed on the stages in our country. But we, we do love the traditional stories, the stories of Aladdin or of Dick Whittington. Why? Because they tell the tale of from rags to riches, from someone of humble origin suddenly going to positions of power. But the Christmas story, the gospel message, centers on our riches to rags story. That the king who sits on the highest throne of heaven, out of love for us, would come to us as the apostle Paul puts it in Philippians 2 verses 68, that though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This God who in amazing humility is moving into our world comes to invert or to reverse our human understanding of greatness. Mary sings verses 52 and 53. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. Our world loves pride and, and power and prosperity. These things are highly valued but they count for nothing in the kingdom of God. This new kingdom that Jesus came to usher in. It's the hungry who are filled with the richest affair. They are the humble who are exalted. And this is something that only a mighty God could achieve. We see that so wonderfully illustrated in the book of Daniel. Daniel chapter 4. In the life of Nebuchadnezzar. There we read in, in verses 30 to 32. The king was on his palace roof and he looked over the great city and said, Is this not great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? While the words were still in the king's mouth, 
there fell a voice from heaven. O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Here is the most powerful man on the planet taken from the court of the king to the field with the cows in a moment. The might of God on display, a might which humbles the pride. And perhaps there are times when you are frustrated or even angry at those who hold positions of power. And surely we would know that our brothers and sisters in Christ and in nations such as Iran and Iraq or Pakistan, China, North Korea, and Nigeria, wherever it might be, people living under great oppression at threat of their lives simply for their profession of faith, would they not be frustrated at the actions of the rich and powerful? Crying out with the psalmist, Psalm 94, verse 3. O Lord, how long shall the wicked, how long shall the wicked exalt? And the psalmist goes on, you can read that at your leisure, Psalm 94, to, to proclaim that he, he knows, God knows what's happening. He sees the world and he will act in this world. He will wipe out the wicked, but he will uphold his own, his righteous with his steadfast love. And that brings us really to the, the last element of, that, of God's character that Mary highlights for us, that he's the God who is mindful. The God who is mindful. The God who remembers his covenant promises to his people. He is to be the people of his choice, those who will be gathered to him forever. And we read here again and again of his covenant faithfulness and his steadfast love. You see, Elizabeth and Mary, like all devout Jews of that time, had been waiting for the fulfillment of the promises. The promises that were made centuries, millennia in the past to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And now they are being fulfilled. These promises from God were forever promises, and they would be fulfilled. They could not be broken because it's a faithful God who makes them. And it's worth remembering that to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, all three men had a similar issue with barrenness with their wives. And they had to intercede before God that they would have physical sons. And they make it clear that they understand it's only God who can give children. Only God who gives the miraculous gift of a new life. And it's only God who can give the spiritual new birth that brings people into his family, chosen and precious to him. Rachel demanded a son of Jacob, and she said, give me children or I shall die, Genesis 30 verse 1. And Jacob responded saying, am I in the place of God? So Mary sings, verses 54 and 55. He has helped his servant Israel. 
in remembrance of his mercy, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. Abraham's offspring, who are they? They are all those who are true believers, born again by the Spirit of God. We know those familiar words from the prologue to John's gospel. We will be reading them next Sunday. There in verses 12 and 13 of John chapter 1, we read, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. God's covenant promise had many elements, but one was a promise of a people of spiritual descendants for Abraham, those born again by the Spirit, and the other was for a king. David had been promised a king. Mary mentions her ancestors in the NIV or our fathers in the ESV, and among her ancestors were David. David received that great covenant promise that one of his sons would rule on the throne of the kingdom, not just for a long time, but forever. And now, a thousand years after that promise had been made to King David, the baby who would be born, this Jesus, fulfills the conditions of both the promise to Abraham that God would be with his people and they would be with him, and also the promise to David, the Davidic covenant that there would be a king to rule forever. As Paul writes, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20, For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. All the promises of all the ages, all God's covenant faithfulnesses, faithfulness is made fulfilled in Jesus, coming to pass in the announcement of his birth. So as we reflect on what Mary teaches us about our God and what she shares in this song, the question is, can you sing this song? Does your soul magnify the Lord? Do you have a reason to make much of his goodness? Does your spirit rejoice because you have received the gift of salvation? Can you testify that you know that God is on the move? You sense it in your heart within. Your life is being touched, changed, and transformed. And do you have that assurance that you are part of God's chosen people, precious to him, to be with him forever? Do you know? Are you sure that you are a recipient of God's mercy, his saving mercy? the greatest gift that any of us could ever know. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you for the song of Mary that makes much of you. May we join with her. May we rejoice in your greatness, your goodness and your love. May we marvel at your mercy. We do deserve to be cast from you forever. The wages of sin is death, and we ought never to be allowed into your presence. But Jesus has come, as we've heard already, to gather his people to himself, to open the way for us through his death and resurrection, to pay the price that we could never pay so that our sins would be forgiven. Lord, may we marvel at this gift. 
And may we accept it with joy. And may we live it out in love. And may we know ourselves to be walking with you and working alongside you in this world to see your kingdom extended, to make much of Jesus, to let his love be known and shown, that through us in any way you choose, Lord, you could touch lives and see you. We ask and pray it all through Christ our Lord. Amen.